This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for February 11th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crusty. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, we have staff news writer Daniel Clary. We talk about the possibly imminent merger of two supermassive black holes. How imminent? We might see a signal in the next 100 days. Next, we have researcher Dominique Brossard. She's a professor and chair in the Department of Life Sciences Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She wrote, as part of a special section on social media and science, about the brave new online world in which social media dominates and gatekeeps so much of the public's access to scientific information. In a galaxy somewhat far away, 1.2 billion light years, two enormous, supermassive black holes appear to be on a collision course, and they may come together as soon as 100 days from now. Staff news writer Daniel Clary wrote a story in Science about the possibly imminent merger of two titanic black holes. Hi, Dan. Hi. Okay, I I said somewhat far away. (laughs) I kind of have difficulty judging space distance. Is this close or far away? Uh, I suppose in terms of galaxies, it isn't that far away in our neighborhood. It's a neighbor to the Milky Way. What were the signs that this was happening, that these two massive black holes may be approaching a collision? It was sort of discovered by accident as this team of researchers were looking for something completely different. They were looking for galaxies where the huge black hole in the center, where it shreds up a star. So sometimes a star can just orbit a bit too close and the intense gravity of the black hole rips it to pieces. And this, you know, the debris glows brightly so you can see it from a long way away. And that's called a tidal disruption event. They were looking for those, but what they found instead was a galaxy where the brightness of the central black hole was varying in a regular way. 
black holes themselves don't emit any light, but they often have um, rings of material orbiting around them. And that again gets heated up really hot and glows brightly. So you can identify them by this surrounding accretion disk. But in this case, the accretion disk was varying in brightness by a regular way. And people have hypothesized that this is a way you can find pairs of black holes that are orbiting each other. Because the fact that they're orbiting in some way alters the brightness of their disks or disk if it's a single disk around both of them. So it's two super massive black holes. These are the monsters that live at the center of galaxies. But they're both in one galaxy. It's not two galaxies colliding. It would have been two galaxies originally, and they've merged, which people think happens quite regularly through the history of the universe. And a telltale sign would be that a galaxy had two supermassive black holes, and it wouldn't have formed them itself, but it's the result of a merger. So that's one way to find them. They're usually in all but a very few cases. They're too close together to be able to separate them with a telescope. We don't have that sort of resolution with telescopes. So you have to find them by other ways. Does the orbit of these two supermassive black holes, does the, the period of that orbit tell you something about how close they are to colliding or how long it will take? That's what people think. I should add here that <laughs> you know, none of these things are confirmed. You know, people have found galactic centers that uh, oscillate like this before, and they think that could be two black holes, but they don't have a way of proving it. In the case of this one, it's slightly different because the period of oscillation was quite short. When they first looked at it, it was just a year long. And when they looked back a few times, they discovered that it was getting shorter quite quickly. And that would indicate that they're spiraling in towards each other and uh, could collide in the near future. And they estimated it could be anything from 100 days to three years from now. But in terms of, you know, galaxies, that's an incredibly short amount of time. Definitely. Yeah, as I keep mentioning, these are huge. They're hundreds of millions of times larger than our sun. Yes. So what will it be like when they come together? Are we going to see, you know, broad spectrum signals in every channel, gravitational, x-ray, you know, what's it going to give off if they come together? <laughs> well, again, that's a big uncertainty because uh, we've never seen one before. So we don't exactly know what's going to happen. And also black holes themselves don't give off any light. They don't give off anything. So if they're still surrounded by lots of material in an accretion disk or two accretion disks, when they collide, those disks will be just be sort of blasted apart. And it could be very spectacular and we'll have gamma rays and x-rays and radio waves, everything. You know, it could be a big astronomical event that lots of telescopes will be keen to see. But if in the course of their rotation, they clear away all the surrounding materials, we might see nothing. Oh, boy. <laughs> would just be these two balls of darkness merging into another bigger ball of darkness. But what they'll definitely produce is gravitational waves. Yeah. So we can detect those, I've heard. <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. We have this fantastic instrument called uh, LIGO, which picked up the first signs of black holes merging a few years ago. But the black holes in that case were much smaller. They were ones formed from just a single star or a few stars. And that produces quite a high 
frequency gravitational wave signal, two supermassive black holes merging will produce much lower frequency and it wouldn't be detected by LIGO. It's just not tuned to pick up that sort of thing. There'd be something different about the signal from this kind of merger if we tried to convert it into a chirp, which is when you take the gravitational waves and transform them into sound we can hear. Yes, it would be like years. <laughs> so, you know, the, the wavelength would be years long. Wow. Amazing. What about in the visible spectrum? Say we get the maximum light show, if you will. Is this something that telescope, light telescopes could see or even the human eye? Hmm, I'm not sure about the human eye. It's possible because it's a galaxy not too far away. You know, if you're getting the maximum, you might be able to see it. But certainly telescopes would be on the watch for it. And some astronomers are already gearing up and requesting telescope time to be able to keep an eye out for it, if not to observe the event, but at least to see if this oscillation is still continuing and getting shorter to get a better fix on when it might happen. So uh, yeah, observers are definitely on the lookout. That's great. What could we learn if this is something we were able to observe in one channel or in multiple channels? I guess it'll tell us about this process of how the black holes wind in towards each other. It's possible that you could get two black holes that just orbit each other forever, not losing enough energy to continue and spiral inwards. But if they're losing it through friction with the material around them, then that's what causes them to in-spiral and eventually coalesce. So it'll tell us about that process, but it'll also tell us about how galaxies evolve, because they have these sometimes enormous black holes at their center, and it's not entirely clear how they can grow that big. And one way that people think it happens is through this sort of merger, when two galaxies come together. I guess we'll know pretty soon if this is going to happen, 100 days to three years, give or take. But there are some researchers, some astronomers who are already expressing doubts. What are some of the reasons to give pause? Well, the accretion disks around supermassive black holes do all sorts of weird things. And sometimes they produce little hiccups of brightness and dimming that looks like a periodic signal and then turns out to be nothing. And that could be happening here. We don't know. Just a burp from a particularly difficult star to eat or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, a bit of indeed, you know, galactic indigestion. But uh, that's why they want to do some more observations, because if that's still continuing on the same pattern, that would add certainty to it. But they had to pause their observations for a while because of our orbit around the sun. The source galaxy was getting a bit close to the sun and telescopes couldn't look at it because it wouldn't be safe to do so. They can't uh, point directly at the sun. So they had to pause for a few months until it uh, emerged again. Okay. This is a past and future question at the same time. This is far away. We're looking back in time when we look out at the sky. So if the merger happened, it already happened. Yes, that's true. It would have happened hundreds of millions of years ago, but we're just hearing about it now because the message takes a while to get here. So is this going to be on your things to watch in the sky in the next five years calendar, Daniel? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it'll certainly be a big event in all meanings of the word if it happens. We have a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Are we going to collide with another galaxy? A merger is going to happen to the Milky Way one day. 
What? Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's true. The Andromeda galaxy is heading towards the Milky Way at high speed. High speed. Yeah, no, really high speed. But the thing, the distances are very large. But in, you know, a few billion years, I can't remember the exact time, uh, they're going to collide. And so we will be in one of those galaxies where two black holes are orbiting around each other. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Well, thank you. Daniel Clary is a staff news writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for researcher Dominique Brassard. We talk about the shift in the sourcing of scientific information away from traditional publishers, newspapers, etc., to social media platforms and what that means for the future of science communication. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. In this week's issue, we have a special section on science and social media. Dominique Brossard is a professor and chair in the Department of Life Sciences Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She wrote an insight piece about the brave new online world in which social media dominates and, I guess you could say, gatekeeps much of the distribution of scientific information. Hi, Dominique. Hi. So you start with this great quote in your article, and it's actually from something that you published almost 10 years ago in science. So let's, let's start with this. Without applied research on how to best communicate science online, we risk creating a future where the dynamics of online communication systems have a stronger impact on public views about science than the specific research that we as scientists are trying to communicate. So you wrote that almost 10 years ago, and I really feel like you are unfortunately pretty correct about what could happen. Yes, when we wrote that perspective almost 10 years ago, we were concerned that scientists and all of us as a matter, take for granted communications, thinking that communication is really common sense and we can all do it. And if we actually make an effort to present our research clearly, simply, plain language, we're going to be okay. And unfortunately, online platforms were developing faster than a capacity to really manage them, understand the effect and see how people react to the content. And I think we are still in need to really, really think through what's going on. Right. Well, as part of this special issue, we solicited tweets about social media and science. These are all on the NextGenSci hashtag. I brought a few of them to kind of include in the discussion, and these are all going to be read by producers Joel Goldberg and Megan Cantwell. Here's the first one I want to share. Social media allows me to crowdsource solutions to problems. Troubleshooting programming bugs has never been easier. Mingju Amy Liu, Center for Excellence in Molecular Plant Sciences, Chinese Academy of Sciences, Shanghai. So there are a group of tweets that we got for this that have a positive view of social, that there's a lot to like about being part of a scientific community online. Here's the second one. Early in the pandemic, I had a nightmare. I went to my field's major annual conference, 
but forgot to go to all the parties. Two years into the pandemic, I can definitively say that Twitter is the next best thing. If I can't go to conferences, at least I can have internet friends. Caitlin M. A. Moat, Department of Neurosciences, University of California, San Diego. A lot of good can come from social media, crowdsourcing, open science, and so on, but with caveats. For example, we did write a piece on, you know, uh, how Twitter and social media allow science to self-correct itself because the studies after publication can be criticized and new reviews can come on and so on. But this is not what we're talking about in this piece. We're talking about not scientists working together, crowdsourcing, sharing the data, making science better, but communicating with the outside audiences, people that are not in our sphere, people distinct from our world of thinking and our way of life and our way of doing research. The mistake that we may tend to do is to just think unilaterally of us versus them. Us, we do in our science, them, they need to understand it. We need to explain and it'll be okay. And I think we are still doing that to some extent. Right. So it's not necessarily a problem of asymmetrical information or we just need to educate more people by saying this stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. There are other forces at work here that people interested in communicating science with the broader public need to take into consideration. Yes, exactly. And I think we've made a lot of progress and I'm so happy to see younger generations of scientists have embraced the world of science communication, want to understand how audience perceive science, want to understand the process by which we make sense of science information that may be complicated. However, what we want to stress that even if we understand all those, even we understand the social psychological process, Unfortunately, the algorithm and the way they are actually deployed and artificial intelligence and all those other forces that we do not control will make our efforts literally be moot. It is really about making the realization that technology is going further away of what we thought it would do. And we need to work all together to make sure that we have a functioning democracy where we don't let those platforms decide for us what people see. Yeah, I have a couple of tweets, I think, that really speak to that. Here's one. A growing number of self-appointed experts peddling misinformation drown out the voice of true scientists who argue with facts, not opinions. Mpo Dipago Stanley Lekoati, Pretoria, Guateng, South Africa. And here's the second one. Social media platforms build algorithms to display contents that maximize engagement rewarding sensationalism and sound bites, and penalizing more nuanced discourse on complex issues. Edward Lau, University of Colorado, School of Medicine. So yeah, I think there is some recognition that algorithms seem to play a more important role than necessarily just knowing the facts, knowing rational argument, knowing how the scientific method works. Yeah, and actually I want to, to pick on two of the points that were raised in those very interesting tweets. The one that kind of dichotomized fact on one end and opinion on the other, unfortunately, it's not always clear-cut. In the context of the pandemic, when, uh, you know, science facts that were actually considered uh, factual information, you know, like six months later are contradicted, expanded and so on by new research. So we also need to be careful by those uh, things that we express in social media as fact 
that may be, you know, based on a consensus, obviously, but not in the context of science that is evolving, such as pandemic. So we need to be also careful and not making it sound like it's a one size fits all fact on one side, opinion on the other, and so on. And the second thing that I think one of your audience members pointed out is very important is that notion of nuance information, right? Is Twitter really the best place to have a nuanced information? Can we, in the short number of characters, explain very carefully the context of something, the study, its caveat, and so on? Maybe not. Maybe we're missing the point by trying to communicate through those environments. Maybe, you know, grassroots approaches at the community level, building trust relationship with local community members that can have a voice, that should be a spokesperson. Maybe that's the way to go. So I think it's all these that we try to outline in our perspective and really making sure that we are careful about what we do in those complex environments that unfortunately we do not control and we should control as a society, but that's another point. Yeah, I was going to say, can science communicators, people who really want to get the facts out there, co-opt these algorithms or can they compete with these algorithms? What can be done to make sure that the scientific information that is reaching the public on these platforms that everybody is using, you know, how can we make sure that the right things are getting to the right people? You can continue to try to be the more and more savvy, savvy on gaming the system, Facebook, Google algorithm, search engine optimizations and so on, and all, all those tricks. Using GIFs, yep. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. But you know, this is really kind of a band-aid situation because look, us researchers that want to actually really understand the effect of those social media posts and how they reach people and so on, we don't even have access to the algorithm. It's like a black box that those private companies have. So I think it's a question that goes beyond just our willingness to be good communicators. The question that actually is in front of us is how, you know, the National Science Foundation and private philanthropies and all those that can fund research can actually have some say in making sure that those private companies give us the access to the algorithm to actually make sure that we can do research that's meaningful. And the research that's meaningful that tell us how, you know, those uh, social posts and so on impact people's attitudes and willingness to share, get published and are used by those science communicators that want to do a good job. Interestingly enough, that piece that we wrote 10 years ago was talking about a piece of research we had just completed that showed the nasty effect of rude comments on science blog posts. And by the way, after our research was published, a lot of science media outlets shot their comments because they realized that those comments were actually detrimental to the understanding of the thing. So research was used to actually go in a way. By the way, I mean, we're not trying to shut down people's freedom of speech or anything. I mean, we've been accused of that before, really far from us. But the idea to, can we actually make sure that we can do research that's meaningful and that the online platforms, private companies are not really literally having us hostage, us audiences, us communicators, us science communicators, because at the end of the day, the uh, intelligent algorithms are controlling what people see. So we can do as well as we want. If there's no way to actually, you know, disentangle those effects, it's going to be hard to move forward in a positive way. The parallel that you mentioned at the end of your piece about computers playing chess, can you talk a little bit about that? I really like that. 
That was the beginning of the supercomputers and chess playing. And Kasparov lost to a supercomputer. He was not able to be better. But as we explained in the pieces, nobody blamed Kasparov to be not able to beat the supercomputer that was able to analyze data much faster than a human mind. Nobody said, okay, we need to teach chess players to think as fast as computers. Right now, we're kind of doing the same way, right? We're saying, oh, we need people to be able to understand what information is misinformation. We need them to realize their cognitive bias. We need them to be science literate and so on. By the way, we should teach all that stuff. But in the meantime, we should understand supercomputers, right? And we need to make sure that it's not all in the hands of the science communicators and their audiences. But it's also on the, the, the side of the algorithms, right? That actually something needs to be done. Yeah. What are the, the big lessons, the takeaways that everyone should keep in mind when thinking about science communication in the age of social media? The first point, I think one of the audience members pointed that out, the necessity for us that are involved in communication to uh, break free from what we call informational homophily, which means that we tend to talk to people that think like us, that retweet what we do, that are going to be annoyed or excited or hopeful about the same thing as we do. And as you say, you know, engagement, read engagement. So the more we share, the more things are shared. We need to know that when we're all excited, let's say that an Atlantic piece is uh, sharing all our views about how we should feel about the pandemic is because we feel the same way as the science writer in the Atlantic. It's a great piece of science writing, but the point is, what does it do as fast convincing people to think otherwise? And I'm talking about the pandemic, but it could be climate change, religious groups and human genetics and so on. So in a true democracy, we need to really try to actually break those bubbles. And unfortunately, even if we know that we need to do that, it's really hard. And the second thing that, that we talked about already that is very important for us to think about is how we need to understand how information gets shared, amplified, and received in online environment. The way we share things on Twitter, what we say and the way we share it is obviously going to be linked to the way people talk about it and share it. So it's linked to that homophily, but the next step, right? How do we actually make sure that this goes on? And that's social science research, by the way. We know a lot of things about that. The third thing that we thought it was really important to keep in mind, there's been, in the last, actually, since we wrote that last piece, really, a resurging of urging for science communicators to uh, rely on storytelling. Narrative. Narratives, and it's a big thing. Well, there's a lot of research on that too. With, you know, like, you know, mixed evidence of how successful they are. They are successful, it's successful, but also you run into the risk of using anecdotal evidence, right? And so that famous quote from that famous scientist, and then they all oh, summarize everybody's thought. Well, no. Actually, and going back to the point of your audience member, urging us to actually remember the nuance of scientific knowledge. So anecdotal evidence, storytelling, yes, but remember, we see, you know, like one story about a kid dying of vaccines, even if it's super, super unlikely, that has more impact in people's mind than anything else we can do. So we need to actually also remember all the research on science and narratives, how can they use, how can they be misused and so on. And this is something that we really need people to think about, particularly as they share stories on social media, they get amplified and reshared and so on. Last but not least, and as the, large, the challenge is, let's remember that what we want is a democracy. 
So a society that relies on a democratic process was everybody has the right to see the information that they need to have like a fruitful life. And right now, with the way algorithm approaches and artificial intelligence free reign on social media platforms that did free reign from our science communication perspective, not in terms of like increasing the income those platforms make. This is really a challenge that we need all to actually think about. And we need to actually make sure that we look for ways to lead to like some democratic consensus of how should they should be regulated. So it goes back to that very topical discussion right now that's going on with Rogan and Spotify. So is Spotify in charge of regulating what goes on on Spotify? Or is it us as a democratic society that should demand some rules as far as what's going on in those private platforms? It's an open question. I don't have the answer, but certainly this is something we should think about. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dominique. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Dominique Brassard is a professor and chair in the Department of Life Sciences Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You can find a link to her insight, all our tweet selections from the NextGenSci hashtag, and more from the special section at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org slash podcast. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.